Hi, it's Kanika, and I'm back with a brand new season of That's Total Mom Sense, where I interview parenting experts, world-renowned thought leaders, best-selling authors, and trailblazing entrepreneurs on their incredible life stories and mom sense experiences. Hi, I'm Gabby Bernstein, and you're listening to me on That's Total Mom Sense. It's me, Bobby Brown, on Total Mom Sense. Can't wait to share my story. Hi, I'm Dr. Lisa, and you're listening to me on That's Total Mom Sense. Pandemic or not, these episodes will inspire you to make every single day count. Episodes release on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Join my tribe and subscribe wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. Hearing the stories of parents, you know, parents for whom, similar to me, they didn't know what to do, their child was struggling, or their child was a little unsure of themselves, you know, they weren't very confident or they were just kind of uninterested and hearing parents use the product and discover the breakthrough that they had with their child, you know, everything from children with learning differences and and how well the product worked for that children who were younger or older, you know, and so I would just pour through it and my heart would grow and my heart would grow. And I'd be like, okay, this is the right thing to be focusing on. And how do we just do more of it to support families? As moms, we often wonder, am I doing enough for my kids? I'm here to tell you, you are super mama. That's because we have an undeniable superpower, our intuition, and it never steers us wrong. I call it our mom sense. Hi, I'm Kanika Chadda Gupta, and I'm the host of That's Total Mom Sense. I'm a journalist, entrepreneur, wife, and mom of three, twins plus one. Now, if I had a dollar every time I heard, gee, you have your hands full. On my podcast, I interview influential moms from various industries and cover topics that all first-time parents grapple with, from getting your baby to sleep to screen time allowance, your new normal in your marriage, and how to dedicate time to yourself. Learn and laugh along with that total mom sense. As we continue to forge on in this new life during and post pandemic, one highlight has been Homer. I am so honored to have the CEO and president of Homer join me today. With over 25 years of experience in education, Stephanie Dua committed to developing better education opportunities and life outcomes for our children. As co-founder and president of Homer, an early learning brand that builds personalized learning experiences for kids, she's passionate about crafting products that support children and parents on the profoundly personal journey to reading. Homer rejects a one-size-fits-all approach to learning. Instead, the learning app taps into a child's unique passions, teaching them the skills they need to be confident readers who love to learn. Prior to founding Homer, Stephanie served as CEO of the NYC Fund for Public Schools, raising more than $165 million to support literacy and teacher training efforts in the country's largest school district, was senior advisor to the Common Core Standards effort and worked with the Robin Hood Foundation, helping build 50 award-winning new school libraries across New York. In a modern environment where parents are inundated with information, she seeks to simplify what and who matters most in helping your child reach their potential. She currently lives in Coconut Grove, Florida with her husband and three daughters. 
Side note, Stephanie's hero is her mother, which is very apropos for that total mom sense. And her values live on in Stephanie and thrive further still in her daughters, Anya, 16, Siona, 14, and Isla, 11. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here with you today. I am too. Your life story is truly remarkable. I can't wait to get into it. Let's start with how we met. We we connected um, you know, a few weeks ago and, and have had uh, several phone calls. And I feel your positive energy and brilliance just shines through. It's so palpable. And I'm sure everyone on your team and anyone new you meet feels this. So well, the feeling is mutual. <laughs> I felt the same way about you, Kanika. I just was so excited and inspired by your story and what you're doing to celebrate messages out there um, about mom's intuition. Thank you. Thank you. No, and it's it's so important. And I'm so glad that we're aligning in this way. Uh, we also have a very special surprise for you. So stay tuned till the end of the episode where Steffi and I will share that. Okay, so let's start from the beginning. You have built a company that's centered around kids and really fostering a joy for learning. Let's start with your childhood. Tell us about your family, how you grew up. I've come a long way from where I started. I grew up in a very tiny, tiny country town. Waterford is the name of the town in the Central Valley of California. It's, you know, in that farming area um, in California. But, you know, I, I had a very interesting childhood out there. I um, was, we were really like free range kids. You know, I think there's now a book on this, right? <laughs> yes, but, you know, yes. before there was a book on it, that's the life we lived. You know, my, um, my dad, we had a small farm. We had pigs and sheep and chickens and some cows and fruits and nuts. And, you know, I, my parents had a very traditional marriage. My, my mom and dad met young, married young. My dad went to college, but my mom did not. She was very traditional. She was very much always creating things, painting, drawing, cooking, canning. She was obsessed with canning, sewing, working in her garden. She would fix the toilet. She would build storage units. She could mm -hmm. do anything. And my dad was more quiet. You know, he was a quiet, patient man, is a quiet, patient man, very sensitive, loved to read. He would buy these old books at auction for like five cents, you know, when the library was getting rid of old books and he'd spend his evenings, I always remember with his pipe reading so it was my little brother and I, we were 18 months apart. We were kind of like the Irish twins. I think they call them, maybe not yes. quite so, but, but we felt like twins mm -hmm. um, growing up. And because we lived in this spacious land, we felt it was just us. So we'd wake up in the morning and we'd go about our day. You know, we had no structure. There were, you know, other than going to school, there were no classes to attend, tutors, sports, or any of those things. It was just kind of us on the farm, you know, exploring and inventing and writing and, you know, all of that. Um, my parents, you know, would just say, make it home at some point, you know. And so <laughs> it was really just that sense of freedom in its truest sense, you know, um, and that freedom in country living. And, you know, really through that, my brother became my best friend because it was just the two of us. You know, we didn't have any playmates. There weren't the, the concept of having a, a play date was really not possible because there no one lived near you. So the, just wow. the logistics of actually having something like that was challenging. So we mm -hmm. had our animals and my brother and I, and so we would have to, I'd have to play Batman and Robin with him and he'd have to play <laughs> princess dress up with me, you know? And so we were always like kind of moving between our, each other's inventions 
redemptive play. You know, sadly, my parents' marriage did not um, ended up in divorce, and we they ended up moving not so far apart from each other and kind of co-parented, and that was a big change for us. You know, I think any any family who's you know gone through divorce when you've gone through something that felt so perfect, you know, as a child to something very disruptive like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mom honestly struggled a lot. And that really informed how I think about being a mom and my choices around career. She, after the divorce, really struggled financially. She had three different jobs. She hadn't been to college. So she had, and she had been a mom and loving what she was doing, but, you know, didn't have any really technical skills. And so really struggled then trying to kind of assimilate into the workforce after that. And so that was kind of a, a, a big, a big impression, I guess I would say, you know, and how I think about all of those and how I thought about all of those choices. Wow. Wow. I want to come back to, you know, just living on a farm because I've spoken to many founders and executives and I feel like those who had an upbringing where they were raised in an environment like that, Mm -hmm. where they were outdoors and it was just a free for all. Mm -hmm. um, And they could just let their imagination run wild. They've become entrepreneurs in their adulthood. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that's what it takes? Can we simulate that for our kids? Oh, it's yeah. I guess I think you can simulate it 100%. You know, it's interesting. I do think there is a connection. I've never studied it. It's a great question. But I do think from my personal experience, what you learn when you have tremendous freedom and really ambiguity as a child, no one's telling mm-hmm. you what to do, right? So you have to figure everything out yourself, Where, you, how you get from place A to place B, you know, what you want to There's no one entertaining you. So you, you, you learn to tinker, you know, in that purest form, you learn to make things, you know, and sometimes it's dangerous. Like we, Greg and I would like blow up things, you know, we'd use the wrong chemicals together, <laughs> you know, and my parents would get mad at us, but, you know, and so, but you learn from mistakes and you get lost, you know, Greg and I would get lost. You know, one time we got lost in, in the Sierras, you know, for a day because we were able, my dad let us go out and hike on our own when we were really young, but we found our way back, you know, I mean, that was a little scary, but we did figure out how to get back. You know, we climbed a tall mountain, tried to figure out how to read the land and find our way home. So there is an element of you're able to take, you're not afraid of taking risks, I think is the central theme. You're, you know, that Mm. you can take little risks and then bigger risks and bigger risks. And you know, you can figure things out as you're taking those risks. Mm, Yes. And then your parents critic to them that they weren't helicoptering. Well, and it's interesting because, and you know, in many marriages you come and you have different parenting styles, right? Mm. So I grew up in this free range family, you know, where you were dirty and messy and, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe you did your math or not, or you did your, we always read, we were a big yeah. reading family, but there certainly was nothing organized. We never went to camp or anything in the summer and we led a very modest life, but you learned a lot of hard work and you learned how to do hard jobs. And my husband, who's um, an Australian Indian, he grew up in Sydney or outside Sydney in the country a little bit, but you know, his parents were traditional um, Indian immigrants to Australia. Right. And so everything was about education. Uh, Everything was about, you know, 
making sure that you had every possible educational opportunity, you know, and my parents were like, you'll figure it out. You know, you'll kind of figure it out. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so reckon bringing those two perspectives together and trying to figure out how do we parent these kids? You know, how do we think about bringing the best of both to our marriage and our relationship and our, and our philosophy on how we want to raise kids was, was a really interesting experience. (laughs) Yes. I can only imagine that's, that's great. Okay. I wanted to also ask you, since your parents come from Lebanon, do you remember anything about Lebanon and um, what was their immigrant story? Well, so my parents, that's a great question. My my dad was actually working. There's, they're not Lebanese. Um, they're not, but we lived in Lebanon. I was born in Lebanon. My dad lived in the Middle East and in Northern Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was working there um, really. I, I think he was working for Goodyear Tire Sales or something, and they have sent him um, to the Middle East. So I we left, you know, before I have any memories of the time, but I always felt a connection to the culture, you know, and I always felt really proud of the fact that I was born in this country that was so beautiful at one point, right? Mm -hmm. And then very sad, you know, to see what what happened um, to Beirut in particular, the city over time, and really wanting to get back, you know, obviously with COVID, all of us want to kind of get back out and explore the world. But, you know, there's a part of me that always feels that connection to that area, but I've never been since I was really little. You know, once we moved to the country, we really didn't travel. You know, our summers were about staying you know, in the country or going to Yosemite, we didn't really travel that much. Okay. Yeah. No, but that's great that you had that exposure to another country as a child, because I feel like that molds you too. It all informs your identity, how you think about yourself and, and what things you pull at different points in your life. Right. Right. Absolutely. So you and your mom were very, very close. Yeah. Were you a lot like her? You know, you don't any daughter, I think many daughters, you know, in that teenage year, you're like, I want to be the opposite of her. I want to just be everything she's not, you know? And then, you know, you realize you go through this natural pathway and you realize in your early twenties, you're like, well, she's not so bad. And there's a lot of things I love about her. Yes, there is so much. She really, she was always a very warm and inviting person. So growing up, we would always have these three little cots. She didn't have much means, but she was always inviting kids in to live with us. Friends of my brothers that were having a hard time at home, they would live with us for a period of time. Friends of mine that were having a hard time at home or the parents, you know, were going through a rocky period, you know, they would live with us at a point in time. And everyone, she loved Christmas. And so everyone had a stocking, no matter whether you were, you know, really, truly part of the family, or you were an adopted member of the family. And so, yeah, there was a lot of that generosity, you know, is how I think about it. And I think about how important being a generous individual and thinking of others and not just thinking of yourself really embodied, really embodied my sense of my mom. And I try and carry that through with my friends, my family, and really anyone that I come close to. In fact, you know, as you can imagine, running a building a company and my husband travels four days a week or did before COVID, we had to have a village help us raise our families. We had all these, you know, college kids, teenagers coming over afterwards, helping me with the girls. And many of them now, you know, I've been to their weddings. I've been to baby showers with them. Two of them are godparents to our kids. So it's that example of, you know, really having this broad definition of family and being an inclusive, you know, being as inclusive as you can with all of the people in your life is really what she, she brought to me. 
That's so beautiful. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, I really love that. Okay. So what is one lesson that your parents imparted on you that you implement with your kids today? So many. I think the one that comes to mind most is, you know, really just being open about what's who you are as a person. Meaning at dinner, when we talk, if Andre's having a bad day, my husband, he'll talk about it or talk about, you know, you know, he's at McKinsey. So he'll talk about, you know, there's something that was a challenge for him. He'll share that, you know, I, if I'm having a hard time at Homer, you know, or I'm dealing with a hard issue personally, or a friend has hurt me, you know, being really open to sharing the ups and downs of life and not feeling like it, it, it makes you human as a parent and approachable. And so I think that that also helps my kids understand that you don't have to be perfect. You're going to have ups and downs, you know, and it's okay. And you can get through those ups and downs. Yes. So I wanted to, uh, get into your fervent passion for earth science because that was your major. Yes. Um, What compelled you to go full speed ahead in pursuing that field of study? So I, because I grew up in nature, really on this farm, I was always, and we were close to Yosemite. So our big summer holiday was always camping in Yosemite. And so I just grew up in the mountains. And so for me, it was a natural extension to think about how might I spend more time understanding. I used to like to think that the way I thought about it, at least, was I studied geology, geophysics, is that rocks are kind of like a scrapbook of our environment. They hold these histories and stories. And so I was always interested in understanding the stories of rocks, like what 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 was life like at this period of time, yes. you know? And, and so as a geologist, you get to un- unlock these stories and understand these points in time, you know, and... In, in, um, in history and, and what informed that in our environment. And I love that. I love science. You know, I think if I'm being really honest, I, I didn't, I I lacked a lot of confidence in writing, you know? And so I, I felt that, okay, well, maybe I'm not as strong a writer, but I can certainly do math. And so, you know, I, education was not a straightforward journey for me. I went to community colleges out of um, high school and then you know, made my way ultimately to UCLA, um, but it was not a straight path. And so, you know, it took a lot of confidence for me to feel like I could do some of the things I, I ended up doing. Um, but math was certainly, and science was certainly a love from an early, early age. I'm just amazed at how much you know your breadth of knowledge across many spheres. And um, I feel like, you know, it's a testament to your work ethic and how you have this insatiable curiosity. Um, and yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, I, I was reading on your website, it says you've worked your entire life and you proved naysayers wrong along the way. Mm-hmm. In middle school, you cleaned houses to earn money. And at 17, as you mentioned, you attended community college. You worked at bars and restaurants to pay off tuition and have some spending money and then transferred to UCLA while working 20 hours a week or more with a marriage and divorce along the way, you proved everyone wrong. So you followed your, your major of geology and geophysics and then became valedictorian for the earth and space science department at UCLA. You were the first person to graduate summa cum laude from the department in UCLA's 75 year history. And you went on to continue your education with a Kennedy fellowship at Harvard's uh, Kennedy School of Government. 
it's just, I'm getting chills. How incredible. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, it was a lot of hard work. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, I think that at each, when I look back at the influences in my life, I didn't have, growing up in a tiny little country town, I didn't have a view of all these different jobs. You know, I had a view of the kind of jobs I knew that were close to my world, right? So I knew about some basic jobs, farming. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so I didn't understand, and I still remember the story my my roommate at Harvard, she said, I said, oh, would you do before coming? She said, oh, I worked in banking. And I said, oh, my mom worked in banking too. And she was like, oh, really? What bank? I said, well, she worked at Wells Fargo. And she said, oh, I worked at Goldman Sachs. And I said, oh, that's interesting. I, haven't, I don't think we have those in California. We don't have that bank in California. <laughs> and she's like, no, I'm pretty sure they have that in San Francisco and Los Angeles. And I'm like, well, I don't think so. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I've never seen it. No one has their checking account there. Right, and, then, and, and then she, we were having this parallel conversation. And she's like, well, you know, it was really hard. I worked all the time, you know, and, and that's, I could just got really burned out. I was like, God, that's so different than my mom. She got yeah. off at five, you know, she was able to be <laughs> home by five fifteen. you know, and we were literally having a different conversation, you know? And so, and then she was like, I think you might have a different idea of that kind of banking, you know, mm. and, but I had no idea there were different types of banking. You yes. know, I thought, all types of banking involves sitting, you know, as the teller, you know, right. taking money, your cash or your checks and, giving you money back. Like, I, exactly. you know, that was like my concept of banking at that point. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I think <laughs> that's great. And I, it's uh, it's a refreshing to hear that because when you come from a big metro, you know about iBanking much earlier on, you yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah. So you've always wanted to work in public service though. I feel mm. like that yeah. has been, you know, definitely um, part of your trajectory and you took an uncharted path graduating as a Kennedy Fellow. So how did you weave in public service into your career? So as I, yeah, it's a great question. So I've always viewed, I had a view when I was at the Kennedy School and even before the Kennedy School that it was important in my life for me to move between working in a for-profit business environment to working in a nonprofit environment, to working really in government. And I always felt like I would be a better leader by having that experience between the public, the private, and the government um, sectors. And so I, that was always my intention. But at the Kennedy School, it was very atypical to do anything in business. So I actually started at McKinsey, which is where I met my husband. I was in the LA office. He was in the New York office. I, but I always knew I wanted to, I was super interested in McKinsey and learning those skills. But I always kind of knew I wanted to move between these different paths. And at, at, right after 9-11, I took a secondment. I took a, uh, you know, a leave of absence to kind of work right after 9-11 in the relief efforts in New York City. And so I joined the Robin Hood Foundation at that time. Um, they were um, right downtown, you know, when the planes hit and they really did a lot of the relief efforts. And so I really wanted to be part of that. My husband also did the same. Mm. So we both worked for different uh, NGOs, but really helping out with the, the 9-11 relief efforts. And from there, it was really natural for me. I always cared about education. It mattered to me. Education was hard for me. It really was not easy. And so I always felt in my heart that it shouldn't be this hard. That was just really very simply, I felt that education shouldn't be this hard for kids. And so um, I was a Pell Grant kid and it really, everything came with a lot of effort. And so my mission early, early in my um, career was to figure out how can I help other children 
make it a little bit easier, a little bit simpler for parents and mm-hmm. for children? And how do you give opportunities and access? And how can you think about expanding horizons for children that maybe don't have that opportunity like I didn't have when I was growing up? Right. Wow. I love that. I love that you're constantly trying to find a way to fill those gaps. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, And that was really Homer. Homer was really born out of that Mm -hmm. same passion, you know, you know, coupled with, I had my oldest daughter, Anya at the time, I had three babies and oldest daughter, Anya was struggling with reading and I had access to every expert, Kanika. I could just, I could, you know, I had this incredible literacy advisory board, you know, and um, everyone said that there really wasn't anything they trusted for um, parents. There was a lot of great stuff there for teachers, but, you know, really in the parenting space, it was more entertainment, edutainment kind of products. And so there was nothing that they really trusted, you know, and meanwhile, we were sitting in meetings with, you know, in Mike Bloomberg's administration with Joel Klein, looking at outcomes for kids, you know, and we knew that if children weren't strong readers by third grade, it was not impossible, but very difficult to recover from that. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, could you build this business that could really help parents and and really empower parents to help their children give them the best start possible? Right, right. When did you come up with the concept for Homer? I mean, it started, I don't know that I've ever told anyone this story. (laughs) I was, my husband and I were talking about the other day. It really started very simple because my daughter was struggling reading. So I thought, there has to be something I can do, yes. but I'm not, you know, I'm not a trained professional in reading. Right. So I, I kind of became obsessed, you know, and started figuring this out at night, you know, after, you know, my day job was running the fun, I'd put the kids to bed and then I would start to do all this research and try and figure it out. So I thought, well, what if I just start by creating like little leveled books, like little leveled readers so that she could start reading some very basic words, words to sentences, sentences to like a paragraph, a paragraph to like a a short chapter. The very original concept was like, let me just create five little books. And from there then, of course, because I get very ambitious quickly, I'm like, no, we can do more than that. Let's solve the entire reading (laughs) crisis. And no, we can even do more than that. We're going to do math and we're going to do social emotional learning, you know, And, and kind of as I got into it, I got so inspired I got really inspired, Kanika, in the early days. I would read every single support email that came in and I would personally answer them. And I would be sitting there, you know, from midnight to 3 a.m., just like with tears in my eyes, hearing the stories of parents, you know, parents for whom, similar to me, they didn't know what to do, their child was struggling, or their child was a little unsure of themselves, you know, they weren't very confident, or they were just kind of uninterested. And hearing parents, use the product and discover the breakthrough that they had with their child, you know, everything from children with learning differences and and how well the product worked for that children who were younger or older children in another country. We had this woman who was living, um, who had adopted a young boy from Kenya and she was living in France and she was trying to teach him English. And so she was using Homer to teach him English families in Malaysia, you know, and so I would just pour through it and my heart would grow and my heart would grow. And I'd be like, okay, this is the right thing to be focusing on. And how do we just do more of it to support families? Oh my gosh, that's incredible. How did you come up with the name? So it wasn't Homer Simpson, to be clear. That's not what inspired me. Yes, not at all. So my 
my framework, my philosophy on parenting and motherhood is that it's this very nonlinear journey and, and, and it's really nonlinear. Like it's so circuitous, you know, it's up and down and right and left. And people think about life in this very linear way. Like you start at one point, you go to this point and it's a straight line, you know, right. and I, it's just not the truth. Right. And yeah. I think the moment you think it's the truth, then you're disappointed. Yeah. So I always knew that learning was like that learning, you know, has its ups and downs. There are moments that are slower moments that are faster and moments where you dig into dinosaurs and moments where you want to do other things. And, and motherhood is much the same. And so mm-hmm. it was a nod to the epic journey, you know, Homer. Yes. Um, and also what I liked in it is it had the word home in it. And so ah, I really liked the so idea. Odyssey that, for that reason. <laughs> yeah. It was like, I really always in my heart wanted to serve families. You know, I, I never, it, even though we have teachers and I'm so excited to get classroom products, but my heart isn't really helping families because that's where I feel like the biggest opportunity is. Yes. Oh, that makes so much sense. That's really great. I love how symbolic that is. So what was that driving force that took you from corporate and public service to becoming a bootstrapping entrepreneur? Yeah. I mean, it was really lonely, but I would say the first you know, a few months and it was really hard to, you know, you're starting, you know, you're, it's, it's a hard thing to just invent something out of nothing, yeah, you know, right? Uh, you yes, know what I mean? Yes. So it's, it's kind of like, where do you start? Right. You right. know? And so, and I was by myself, you know, I mean, I didn't in the very early days, it was just me. I tried to break it down into small pieces. And I think okay. that, again, this is a lot like parenting when something feels overwhelming, you just break it into its smallest pieces and you think about, okay, can we do this one piece? And then after mm-hmm. we do this one piece, we can do the next piece and just keep kind of building from there. And then raising my first round of capital was, you know, enormously time consuming and, and really exciting and challenging at the same time, you know, because I think at that time, you know, female founders, there, there really wasn't, of course there were female founders, but there was, it wasn't a thing at that time, you know, now my, I'm so proud of my sister-in-law, Nishidua. She's, um, you know, running Built by Girls Ventures, which is focused on female founders. And there are many others who are doing some great work and supporting women, um, women business, women-oriented businesses, mostly consumer businesses. Mm -hmm. And so, but at that time, none of that existed. So, you know, kind of trying to chart that pathway, you know, and not, you know, there were some groups that were wonderful that were kind of older women that wanted to contribute back to younger women, you know, that would, you know, kind of pool their funds together and give money to you. But traditional VC was, it was tough. It wasn't, yeah. it was, you know, we did it, you know, I did it eventually, but it wasn't easy. You know, we, I was, it was not clear always like, why are you sitting across the table for me? You're not a traditional entrepreneur, right. you know, yes. yeah, I, didn't, I didn't fit the profile of a traditional entrepreneur. Right. And then once they knew I had three children at home, small children <laughs> at home, that was also challenging. Yeah. Where you feel you're being um, kind of tested or questioned. Yes. Um, questioned in different yes. ways than I think yes. if, if I wasn't, you know, a if woman you with small children. Right. Right. Absolutely. I wanted to touch upon the the array of apps that are out there for kids. Sure. I, I'm talking kids are even more familiar with Khan Academy, ABC Mouse, and a slew of others. What makes Homer different? There are a few things that make it different, and there there are great products out there. So one of the things that makes it different is what meant to me in in creating Homer. I didn't want to just create a supplement, which is sort of 
helps pass the time doing something educational. I really wanted it to add a lot of value to a child because remember, I grew up in the country where you were just outside playing all day, right? (laughs) Right. And so the view I always had is this has to be, you still have to go outside and play a lot. But if you're not going to be outside just digging in the dirt, I want this to be really, really valuable. And I want this to be something that actually works. So, you know, this is a product that actually teaches kids to read. It's not supplemental. So it actually teaches a child step-by-step to read as if it's a teacher with the child. It's not just assuming that they're getting teaching instruction in the classroom and then it's helping them outside of that. The second thing that makes it different is that it's proven to work. We were the first product in the market to take our app and have it tested independently. And we had a third party do a double-blind randomized study. The former U.S. Assistant Secretary of Education, she came back saying, I'm so blown away. Kids are kindergarten ready after using it 15 minutes a day. It blew my mind away how powerful it was in the, you know, with these kids. But the third thing is it's so important to me to be, parenting's hard. It's confusing. There's so much noise in the market. It's so hard to know, like, do I do this now or do I do that? Or should I spend time on this? Like what matters? And so part of our mission is to say, we want to be a partner to parents and helping really simplify things and help you understand what really matters and providing products and services. So we have physical toys, we have kits, and they're all lined around skills that we believe really matter in these early Mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. Um, The other piece that's so important to us is supporting parents. And so how can we help continue to support parents on this journey, you know, through other educational supports, you know, helping them really understand what does and doesn't matter. So it's apps, it's physical toys, and then it's also parent support. That's wonderful. I feel like I want to give my own testimonial because I find Homer to be an extension of what I'm doing with my one-on-one time. Yes. Yeah. And I think that that's what's so important for parents to know. Our philosophy, my husband and I, after kind of really thinking about our perception of reading, mm. he um, he gave me like a good insight. He said, "You know, we can we can really bore down on the phonics mm-hmm. and and try to teach about like stringing letters together and mm-hmm. learning to read, mm-hmm. but." The minute that that becomes painful for the child or they're they're not amenable to it, mm-hmm. they have lost their love for reading. That's correct. Yeah. Right. And yes, so that's right. the one thing that keeps their intrigue is mm-hmm. the stories. And yes. so he was saying how let's focus on bedtime stories. Yes. Um, let them pick the the books. We do that, and even if it's the same one over and over, and have them feel that sense of you know imagination and joy through the process, the storytelling process. Mm. And with Homer, the stories, my kids gravitate to the stories. Uh, my my daughter watched um, Angelina Ballerina this morning. Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And so that's what it is. It's like the, the princess stories. She gets to yes. click on princess. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but that's important. The yes, that's right. Because yeah. it's interesting to her. Exactly, exactly. And the fact that you have specialized it in such a way where my child who loves dinosaurs gets yes. that. My child who loves trucks and excavators gets that. That's right. That's um, exactly right. And they gravitate towards that. And it's just, it's exactly what we would have provided them as yeah. parents, the books we would have given them as parents. Yes. And now they're, they're doing it themselves on the app. Well, you have exactly the right philosophy. So your approach is what I would recommend to any parent, which is, you know, the, let the child show their interest, right? And because you, 
Our job is to make sure that you're scaffolding all of this so that as they're interested, you're providing those opportunities for them to explore their interests. Um, And you don't want learning to feel like a chore at 100%. So it really has to come from a place where they find, and children are naturally curious. Mm -hmm. So you're really finding these opportunities to allow them to be curious, to explore and build their skills. And that's why doing it, you hit it right on, but allowing kids to explore it through their interests is one of the most powerful ways of learning. Yes. Yeah. It's really great. What was it like, you know, becoming a mom for the first time? I mean, it was terrifying. (laughs) I was, you know, I don't, I was a motherless mom, right? I didn't have my mom. Um, Mm. My mom's, my mom died of breast cancer and um, her sister also uh, passed away from breast cancer. And so I had my husband's mother. And so I just, I became like her other daughter and she became my mother, um, even though she lived in Sydney and, you know, and our cultures were so different, right. You know, she grew up in this kind of quasi arranged marriage, right. You know, in Indian family. And so uh, her journey was completely different, you know, immigrating into Sydney, but I, it was my first daughter, Anya, and this will be, it's a great success story. So I will say the success story, but she was, she cried solid for three months. So I was expecting motherhood to be this just like sunshine and walking around with the babies naked and everyone's happy. And she literally didn't stop crying. So we would invite friends over to like sit with her on a bouncy ball. Like, while we like, like it was tough. And then my husband was traveling. So I was alone with her. So I was counting the bricks on the back of the brownstone next door, you know, while I was trying to rock her. Right, right. So she'd start to cry and I'd start to cry and then we'd both be crying, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it was it was the opposite of what I had imagined motherhood to be, you know. Yeah. And so I felt like a total failure. I felt, you know, what am I doing wrong? You know, I'm I, I can't do anything right, you know, and you have so much negativity around you. Well, you, your child must be colicky because you you're eating the wrong thing when you're nursing, huh. or you know, all of this noise. I mean, eventually she grew out of it by around four months, but you know, she is, you know, now applying to colleges. It's so hard to imagine. She's <laughs> driving. She's having yeah. her 17th birthday this weekend. Wow. And she has started her own nonprofit called uh, Gen Z Identity Lab. And she's one of the foremost speakers around Gen Z and identity and how to think in a more nuanced way about what does it mean to be part of Gen Z and what are their beliefs and customs and habits and how do they shop and how do they vote and you know and so she's really and she was an absolute nightmare the first three months yeah. you know so <laughs> I I like to say you know that that's it so ends encouraging well. yes <laughs> and she was stubborn as heck her whole yes. you know she was the kid who like it's freezing outside we're gonna have to put our pants on she's like, I'm not wearing pants today you know and so you right. just like okay well you're gonna go outside with nothing on your legs so yeah um <laughs> You know, but it was, it was circuitous. I would say my job as a mom is not to make my kids happy. My job is to help them experience the entire range of emotions that they're going to experience. They're going to experience loss and hardship and joy and pride and embarrassment and, and failure and all of those things. And my job is to make sure that they're supported as they're experiencing all of these emotions. And so that was a little bit my philosophy is that 
you know, I didn't want to protect them from those experiences. And we did have a number. My oldest daughter, Anya, had a lot of health problems in middle school and had to get pulled out of school. Um, and she's been treated by a lot of different doctors. And so she's had this really, this really intense health journey. And for any mom who has a sick kid, it's just, it destroys you. It's so hard. But yet, you know, look what she's doing now, you know, yes. and so I, and she still has some health challenges, but, you know, she's the strongest person I've ever met, you know, and she has this personal will and strength and sensibility and maturity um, because we allowed her, we didn't protect her from that hardship. You know, mm -hmm. you know, when she was lying in bed at night saying, mommy, am I going to die? Am I sick? Like, am I going to live through this? you know, we had to say, I think so, but we don't know, you know, I mean, things were pretty difficult there for a while. And she was mad that the doctors didn't know how to treat her. And she was mad at us about that. And you can't protect them from all of yeah. that, right? She had to yeah. experience the fallibility of humanity that not everyone has an answer for everything, right. you know, and this is some of life. The other kind of piece I always like to um, share with parents is one of the things I did in that really carried with me from when I was growing up is I always really wanted my kids to be close to each other. So when we take holidays, we wouldn't travel with other families because it was always a time for the girls to spend time with each other on the oh. weekends. I always would say, go play with your sisters, you know, yes. you can do whatever you want, just go play with your, like let the sisters play. And so they always grew up playing together and eventually they ended up creating what's called the sister's code which is their own code of living. Okay. And so when they get mad at each other, we cannot get involved. There's like a whole system, a governance system, you know, and there's always an arbiter. So like if the baby, Isla, she's not a baby anymore. She's, yeah. you know, 11. But if the two older ones are fighting over the sweatshirt that someone stole, you know, Isla is the arbiter and she hears both sides and she takes it <laughs> under consideration. And then she's like, well, look, Anya, I think that you were wrong here. And Siona, I think that you should have done this differently. Now let's close this. And everyone has to agree to resolve it and move on. Can you send so this to me? We have never, <laughs> my husband and I have never been involved in an argument. I love it. Yes. Oh my goodness. That's brilliant. And yeah. Oh, okay. I, I could talk to you for hours, but my husband and I had this very conversation two days ago because we, we had enrolled our third in school and he's in a different class and right. the twins are together. And we said, whatever we can do, we want to foster an unbreakable bond between the siblings. Yes. If they need to team up against us, yes, let them. That. Let them. We are exactly. fine with that. Exactly. Yeah. Just don't choose. I don't know your friends That's or right. outsiders That's over right. your family. Yeah, and we used to have these like little repeatable messages. I'd always tell the girls. I'd say like at the end of the day, when mom and dad are off and you're in college or living your life, you're going to have your sisters. Yes. And this kind of noise is not going to be there with a particular right. friend who's giving you a hard time. Focus on your relationship with your sisters, lean on them for advice. Yes, yes um, exactly. And so that's what they do. Yeah. The problem solver in you mm -hmm. try to find a cure for your mom's cancer. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, tell us about that because it's really incredible. Well, you know, it was a huge surprise. My mom um, came to visit me. I was at Harvard and she came to visit me for the first time. She had never traveled really other than when my mom and dad were overseas. Once they moved to the country, she had never traveled. So she was um, her first trip really out east and she traveled and we went from Boston down to New York and you know, we had just the best time ever. You know, we stayed at like little motel sixes and travel lodges and um 
and it was, it was amazing. And what I didn't know at that time is she was sick and she didn't know that she was sick. So that was like November. And by January, she had been diagnosed with breast cancer, but by March, she passed away. So it was very, very fast and she didn't have healthcare. And so I'd wheel her to the hospital and I'd be like, you have to look after her. Something's wrong. They said, oh, she's just depressed or something's going on. And so Mm. it just, it was a, you know, the, I think the challenges in many smaller towns is the lack of access to quality healthcare. And that was yeah. a great example of it. And so I was angry. I was really angry that I felt like she was in pain for so long and there was nothing I could do. I was her person, you know, cause she was not married. And so I was the person who making all these medical decisions, you know, end of life decisions, what to do with her. I'm like, I had no idea what to do with any of these, how to make any of these decisions. Yeah. But there were some bright spots when she passed away right before we were taking her home for hospice care. She couldn't see anymore, but there was a little pink tulip on, um, beside her hospital bed. And she said, you know, I have some bad news for you. And she was telling me that she was not going to make it. And so we, of course, my brother and I knew um, yeah. at that time, but it was her time to say goodbye. And so she said, can you hand me that flower? And she said, you know, when you were born, you were the most beautiful child and I will love you always and forever. And she gave me this little pink tulip. And so every year on her birthday, I give pink tulips to my friends and my children. And so you know, we moved to Miami not long ago and I met some wonderful women. And this just this past March on her anniversary of her death, it's now been 22 years. I sent some pink tulips and I was like, you know, it's all about just sharing the love. Like she was an incredible woman. She, we, my brother and I loved, and she said, look, you know, look after Greg. I mean, Greg, meanwhile, was like 18 months younger. And I'm like, who's looking after me and all of this, you know? But I looked after Um, him. And so we were in California and I met Andre and I said, and he's like, you've got to move to New York. New York's where everything's happening. And I said, I can't move to New York unless my brother moves with me. And he's like, what are you talking about? You're in your twenties. <laughs> and I said, no, but I can't go anywhere without my brother. Yes. And so I said, Greg, you've got to go apply to NYU and go to grad school and do this. And so he's like, okay. You know, so we sat there and we wrote his application and, you know, together and, you know, we did and he moved with me, you know, and we spent every dinner together. And I think it's just that there's so much, I don't know that as a mother, as a person who lost her mother, moms have any idea when you have like the power of love you have for your children. Like it's just, as I see my 17 year old now thinking about leaving and going to college, she said to me in this quiet moment the other night, she's like, I don't know what I'm going to do without you, (laughs) you know? And she said, I'm ready to go, but I don't want to go to bed and not know that you're not down the, you know, down the hallway from me. I'm not ready for it, you know? And so it shaped me and it formed me. And I was shattered, Kanika, if I'm being really honest. I had to yeah. like, I'm a different person. I think when you go through these, these very traumatic experiences, it's not like you get back to your old self. Like you're actually right. evolve into a different person. And I went to a really hard place. It was really hard for me for a number of years after she died. I didn't, nothing made sense to me in the world. I didn't understand how these things could happen and how systems could be so broken and really how 
things can change so unexpectedly, you know, like one day everything's fine and the next day it's not, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But luckily Andre's mom was really my next mom, you know? And so, and I learned all the Indian recipes from her. I learned how to cook chicken curry and chole and Uh chutney and chapatis. (laughs) And, and I know how to shop at the Indian stores. Um, But then she passed away unexpectedly in a car accident in India three years ago. And so, so, yeah, so it's just sort of my, both my husband and I have now experienced these two sides of losing our mother, one, you know, very, very unexpectedly in a car accident and one cancer. But for me, when my husband's mom passed away, I felt like I was losing my mom all over again, you know, and so it was... But but their memories hold on, right? And that's with the pink tulips and Andre's mom, you know, brought us all of her cooking, you know? And so every night when I, I cook Indian, I mostly cook Indian because I didn't have a mom to teach me anything else. <laughs> so my only, I'm like such like an, I'm really an Indian child. You yes. know, I'm really a South Asian child. I have all oh. the saris. I have, I have, I cook, I have the little dish pan with all the little spices. Yes, yeah, the, the little, masala I, dish. Oh. Exactly, I have the masala dish with yeah. all my spices. And you know, I you can I, put I, like turmeric in anything. You can put turmeric. I put turmeric in everything. Eggs, nice. everything. Yes, it's amazing. My tea, right. exactly. It's amazing. Oh my gosh! Oh, I love that. I love that you fostered such a close bond um, with the mothers in your life. Yeah, you know. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I wanted to touch upon how you and your husband have very demanding careers, and you know, for my listeners. There's no such thing as a work-life balance. I feel like that's a big time fallacy, but you you decide what your non-negotiables are and where yeah. you show up for your yeah. family and for your kids and then for your career. So what are your non-negotiables? How are yeah. you kind of making it a point to show up? So I was pretty clear early on my non-negotiables. I, I didn't, I don't sweat the small stuff. Like most of the time my kids went to school with very messy hair you know, sometimes they'd brush their teeth, sometimes they wouldn't. So we'd always have gum in the car, you know, in case anyone forgot to brush their teeth, you know? And so, you know, because I was like, I just, I'm not, I'm going to get a lot of stuff wrong, you know, but I'm going to just at least get them to school on time. But our non-negotiables as a family were always very simple. We kept it very simple. One is we wanted family dinners together and we Mm -hmm. always had that without devices. So, we just really made the table a conversation table and we do rosebud thorn. We would do, Mm. you know, how was your day? We had to play all these kind of, we just have fun who read the newspaper, who knows what's happening in the news, but we really want it to be conversations. And the second thing is we always had Sunday brunches together. We would go to Rukula, the same place and we'd bring our Uno cards and we'd always play Uno. And the third is we always took holidays together just as family. You know, we would really try to just keep it to the five of us and really spend quality time together. We'd go to Australia every Christmas and really kind of think about these little traditions. And these traditions, it turns out, are really powerful in the memory of a child. Yes. You know, and what I learned both being a mom and talking to psychologists is these repeatable experiences really shape a child's memory. You know, it's the place you go in Maine or the, and it, it doesn't have to be fancy. The thing is like, kids don't need fancy. They just right. need, they need the comfort of knowing this is going to happen then. Like we get yes. to go to Australia at Christmas. It's who are, it's who we are as a family. It's how we identify ourselves. Yes. Oh, that's wonderful. You know, kids that have been through some sort of adversity yeah. are that much more stronger and resilient. Mm. We're living in a generation where we literally have things at our fingertips. 
how do we, whether it's teaching the value of the dollar or create situations that we were we grew up in that were, you know, adverse in some way for our kids now who mm. literally can have everything. Yeah. You don't want them to grow up entitled or lazy. Yes. And yes. it's like, yeah, how do we do that, simulate that? It's super hard. I mean, I think you're constantly fighting things. We try really hard to give them money that they earn. They still have to do their chores to earn the money. And even when they want something, we try not to have it be the immediate, you know? So if they're yes. in a store and they say, I want this, I'm like, okay, well, that's why you have your, your spending money. And you break it once in a while because you do, and that's okay too. But right. on average, you know, when, even though we can buy the magazine in the airport, right, we would say, is that necessary? Like, is this necessary? And we try and talk early on about, why having more things is not always the right thing. Having fewer things that you love more is a better philosophy. So we tried yes. instead of, because otherwise you're like, no, 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 all the time, right. right? So we tried to anchor it. I struggled with this, Kanika, because I was noticing that the kids are like, well, so-and-so's got those shoes. Why can't <laughs> I have those shoes? Yes, yeah. You know, and I'm like, well, me, and they're like, but if we can, if they can afford it, we can afford it. I'm like, well, yeah, how right. do you know? First yeah, exactly. of all, you know, <laughs> and second, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And second, maybe we just don't think that's the right thing, you know, yeah. Yeah. to have that kind of brand or something like that when you're that right. young, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so Andre and I would talk and be like, when you earn your own money and you have a job and you choose yes. to spend your money in that way, you can do that. It's a give and take, you know? And so we try to use birthdays and holidays to go let them indulge right. a bit more on things, but not have it be the everyday thing. Right. Yes, so that yes. you're, you know, and, and the one thing we did do, cause it was getting to be an issue. We sat down and we said, let's create a family mission and a set of values because it felt like it was getting into a yes, no, all the time. And you're mm -hmm. constantly being bombarded with ass and you're always saying no. And then you get tired of being the person who's always saying no right. and they're upset then. So we decided to anchor these things in a set of core values for the family. And it allowed us to say, instead of saying no is, well, do you think that's consistent with our values? And so it pushes the question back on them. And then they would say, oh, yeah, you're right. That's probably not consistent with our values. And so, mm. so let's skip it this time then maybe, you know? And so even something like, like, let's have fewer things that we love more. You know, and so I would say, I even say this today to my littlest, you know, she's like, I really need this squishy pet thing that I don't even understand. This was like last week. And she's like, I have to have it. You know, everyone has this thing that you can squish. I don't even know what's called anymore. But, oh my goodness. And I'm like, okay, but is that in the philosophy of have fewer things that you love more? She's like, oh yeah, you're right. And I'm like, okay, well, just like, let's wait, you know, let's wait right. and see if that's really a need right now. Yeah. In an article on Thrive Global, you advise parents to reject perfection. And uh, in the quote, you say, it's great to get the next reward, but more important to build confidence. We need to push back on the desire for instant gratification. Moments of challenge and discomfort are an opportunity to build resilience, both at work and at home. Don't be afraid to show your struggles. It helps demonstrate that confidence is a long game. Mm -hmm. So I, I just, I love that. And um, I wanted to just touch on this. Sure. Um, yeah. This philosophy of rejection yeah. and failure. So one of my observations from my time in the New York city public schools and then time with a number of educators is that it's very easy as a parent when your child's young to want to 
to make them confident, right? And so what the, the pattern that you can get into easily is they bring their homework home and you look at it and you're like, oh, well, do you think you did this correctly? And you'll point to something and you'll kind of guide them a little bit or wink or you'll, or even more directly, like, I think this is wrong. You know, why right. don't you go do right. it again? Right. The, the challenge with doing that is that they, there are two challenges. One is that a teacher doesn't really know your child's skill and where they are to help them. The second is it ends up creating a crutch for the child so that they're not ever getting anything wrong. And so what I used to do with my kids early on is I would, I never opened up their backpack. I never looked at their homework at all. Yes. If they forgot their homework, they had to get in trouble with the teacher. It's on them. Yeah. It's on them. If they, if they didn't do well, it was on them, you know? And so what that meant was pretty low stakes when you're in kindergarten, first, second grade, (laughs) right? You know what I mean? (laughs) But it built this sense of responsibility because, you know, they didn't want to disappoint their teacher. And so they learned both the executive functioning habits. I need to put my homework in. I need to check my homework. I need to do my homework. I need to, and they learned how to correct mistakes. And, and most importantly, the teachers really understood where my children were and where they needed extra support, right? Because if they needed extra support in a particular concept, it wasn't me at home trying to teach them. It was really the teacher teaching them, Yes, you know? And I think that that's a mistake often that parents make because they want their child to go into the classroom, you know, with their best possible work. Right. But I think it ultimately ends up backfiring later on because kids don't develop those skills early, the executive functioning, the, the learning that, okay, if I didn't get it all right, what do I have to do tomorrow to do better? Yes. Big time. Can I tell you a funny anecdote? Um, yeah. So a friend of mine worked at HR at Disney. She said on, on many occasions, candidates would, once they, you know, had their interview, have their mom call to do the negotiating of the salary. That's crazy. She would be like, what is going on? Exactly. That is crazy. Yeah. You don't want that. No, you know, and you're a 20 something child. You're no, no, no. And so however, right. And that has the apron strings now. My husband works with a lot of uh, heads of uh, colleges and universities, and they say the same thing that, you know, the kid doesn't get into the college and they get phone calls from their parents. Like, why didn't you accept my child? <laughs> like, because I didn't make it. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's going to be okay, you know? And so oh it's goodness. just like, that is going to be a problem. It creates anxiety. The consequence of that is it creates anxiety in children because they ha- yes. don't learn the coping skills early on. Right. And so the best thing we can do is like, kind of let them be into Independent and learn this in the context, you know, right. and learn it in really safe situations early on and not, it's the, you know, the opposite of helicopter parenting, right? Allowing yeah. them to fail. Right. Exactly. Exactly. If you can tell us about a mom sense moment, and as you know, the show is kind of predicated upon this intuition that kicks in mm-hmm. when you become a first time mom or a dad. So when was a time that you recall where you just trusted your mom sense? Recently. So I, this is a longer story for another time. It'll be our next time, Kanika. But I woke up at 4am in the morning, one morning, and I've only done this twice to my husband. The first time is I was like, I'm pregnant. I like, I I went to the bathroom and I'm like, wake up, I'm pregnant. And he was like, it's 4am, go back to bed. I'm like, no, this is the best news ever. And he's like, go back to bed and we'll talk about it when I wake up. Um, And so the second time I did it was three, uh, two years ago, uh, two and a half years ago. 
And I just had this feeling that the the big city life wasn't for my family anymore. Like we, it was the best thing for them when they were little, but it was really starting to wear on my kids. You know, the commute to school, the not having the outdoor space, not being in nature. And so I just like, I had this incredible feeling that I had to change their environment. So I woke up at four and I was like, we're going to move to Miami. And he was like, are you crazy? (laughs) <laughs> I don't even know anyone in Miami. Right, right. I, I said, I know, but I love Miami. And whenever yeah. we have a chance, it's so pretty. And it's like Sydney. Like, yes, it's, it's sort of like, much. it's like America, Sydney. He's yeah. like, well, that's all true, but it's 4 a.m. Let's talk about it later. And so he tells the story that, you know, when we got up at 6 or 6.30, and he said, it's not the worst idea. And, and that was like a little bit of the door opened for me. Yeah. And so then by the end of the day, I said, oh, I talked to my friend and she connected me with this friend and we found some schools and it's not too late. And I think we can do it this year. We're not too far past the deadline. And then within two weeks, we had the kids in schools. Wow. Oh my goodness. And we didn't know anybody in Miami. Right. right, right. The whole family picked up. My daughter was in ninth grade. I had an sorry, a 10th grader, an eighth grader, and then a fifth grader. They were all being kind of picked up, you know, and from, they had only lived in one house. They'd only ever been to one school. And I just felt like we needed change. Like we needed some change. Yes. And it's Uh, been great. Yeah. I'm so glad. That's that's amazing that you went with your gut instinct. And I'm a Miami fan as well. I went to UM for grad school. So uh, lived right off of Red Road and loved my drives on Route One, no matter oh, how much traffic there was. So it's like, beautiful. this is gorgeous. Yeah. It's so beautiful. I don't know how anyone can I know um not like this. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful place to raise your family. I said to my kids, I want to walk some, I want to be somewhere where I can walk outside barefoot as much as possible. Yes. yes <laughs> exactly. All year long. Yeah. All year long. Exactly. Yeah. Let's not forget our quote of the day. Is there a quote that you live by? So when my mom um, was saying goodbye, you know, she held Greg and I really close. And she said, um, this was on her last day in the hospital before we took her to hospice. She said, always treat people the way you wish to be treated. She said, if there's only one thing you remember of me and from me, that is the way I want you to live your life. It really was how she lived her life. And so I've always tried to embody that, you know, that, I always want to be that person that people say they felt treated really well by, that they felt respected them, included them, you know, that was, that I'm a kind person, that I inspire in some small way, and that you leave this world and people feel that in some ways connected to you, you know, at yes. that time. So, yes. yeah, so that's that's been my motto, you know, just you know, one person at a time, if I can just treat people really wonderfully, I feel like that, that is a way of living. Oh, that's so sweet. And you do that. <laughs> You're living up to. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. Thank 100%. you. Thank you. It's now time for mom hall when we share products we love. So is there a yeah. product that you're loving right now that's Oh, Kanika, I buy too many products is the problem. (laughs) You know, I I see something and I'm like, I have to try that cream. Of course I have to try that cream. I have so many creams. But um, no, I I have a couple of things. One is I just bought two weeks ago the Remarkable Tablet. It's pretty new. It's a way of like actually writing. 
it feels like paper, but it's digital. And so it's been great for note taking and you can email your notes and you can convert it to text easily. Oh, that's great. Because I'm such a paper person. I like yes. writing physically. Yeah, um, so the Remarkable Tablet, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it's great. I just got it two weeks ago. I'm in love with it. I also, when I moved to Miami, I bought the new, I think it's new-ish, the Joe Malone diffuser, the Myrrh and Tonica one. It's black and it smells, mm-hmm. it reminds me of a little bit of an Indian home. It has some of that, the musky smells and yes. some of the citrus. I love it. And then I'm obsessed with the face cream. I think it's Augustus Bader. Yes. Um, that, the blue bottle. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Bobby both, Brown said the same thing. She said this Bader cream is like insane. reverses time. Yeah. My husband and I both use it. It like sits between us and he's like, that's my cream. That's my cream. That's my cream. It's like, I'm the first one who got it. I'm like, I'm the one who really needs it. You know, he was actually the first one who got it. Yeah. And then my cheap, my cheap product that I really love are blue handy wipes. I discovered them here in Miami, but you can get them at like Costco or Publix here. And they're just like reusable paper towels. They're as old as old can be. And you can buy them dirt cheap. They're a couple pennies per, but they're better than a sponge because they don't smell. Oh, they're nice. just like little blue wipes. Um, okay. and you kind of toss them out, I guess, after about a week, but they don't end up smelling like a sponge does. Right, right. Oh, that's um, good to know. And it's so, sustainable. Exactly. Exactly. That's yeah. right. Oh, so those are my great. those are my hauls lately. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, where can my listeners find you? And home? So yeah, so learnwithhomer.com is our website and and our um, our Instagram where we have a lot of tips for parents. We have a lot of great parent resources on our website. Personally, also on my Instagram is stephanie.dua and on my LinkedIn. Um, we're constantly kind of trying to improve our products for parents. So we'd love to get feedback anytime. Wonderful. Well, now on to our surprise. Yes, I'm um, excited. Yes, yeah. Stephanie and I are very, very excited to share that Homer and That's Total Mom Sense have partnered to bring you at home with Homer. So I'm sure you have um, many, many nuggets of wisdom that you learned from today's interview with Stephanie. And now we get to hear from her regularly. This is a weekly segment on the podcast, and it'll be geared towards helping parents problem solve. Whatever the issue is that we're facing from teaching early learners how to read to building emotional intelligence in your preschoolers to raising each of your children differently based on their personality types and more, we're going to get into all of these tangible tips in this short and sweet package segment so that you feel empowered uh, as a parent and can continue to uh, go about child rearing with a sense of joy and not find it to be a challenge. Uh, I'm so excited for We're so excited. (laughs) Yes, I can't wait to start. We're going to have so much fun. This is really going to be great. Um, Yeah. So, and I'm just, I'm so uh, thankful that I get to talk to you regularly. Likewise. It's it's very mutual. You have, you know, just a wealth of information. And I love the spirit with which you're approaching supporting moms. You know, I just think it's beautiful. It's so needed. You know, I think that there's an opportunity anytime we can make things a little bit, help moms feel confident and not so anxious about their choices. You know, I think that's, that's an incredible service and you're doing it beautifully. Thank you. I appreciate that. I hope you had as much fun as I did speaking with Stephanie. She is just a wealth of knowledge and it's so wonderful hearing all of her tips. And, you know, we wanted to start with her personal story and journey. 
Use my exclusive link so you can visit learnwithhomer backslash M-O-M-S-E-N-S-E in all caps to redeem your 60-day free trial. Your kids are going to love it and you get to try out the app, which is available on iOS and Android for two months for free. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at Kanika Chadda Gupta, where you'll get even more updates about my upcoming shows. Starting next week, we will have our At Home with Homer segment. So be sure to check that out as well. You can write to me at thatstotalmomsense at gmail.com. I read all of my fan mail and letters, and it's really, really endearing to hear from the community because you're why I do this. As always, trust your mom sense and dad sense. Stay strong, super parents. See you next time. That's total mom sense.